with a closer look at the news and events affecting Prince George. Welcome to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. Good morning, Prince George. Neil Godbu, Editor-in-Chief of the Prince George Citizen. Happy to be with you this Thursday morning. Happy you're taking the time to tune in today. Thank you for that. Plenty to talk about on the show today. At the bottom of the hour, I'll chat with my friend and fellow Nachaka Rotarian Robert Quabell about his work with BC Hemp and what's on the horizon for the hemp industry. If you don't know the difference between hemp and cannabis and why that matters, please stay tuned. Actually, I don't really know either, but I intend to find out from Robert. Before I introduce my first guest this morning, I want to talk about Is It One Down, the play currently on stage uh, until February 23rd at Theatre Northwest. Uh, if you were listening last week, I had Jack Greenhouse uh, on the show. Please, please, please do yourself a favor and go see the show. Go buy your tickets right now. In these challenging times of protest, where reconciliation with Indigenous peoples seems to be further away, in doubt, this play offers a hopeful and joyful, yes, joyful vision of reconciliation. Is it when Dum tells a personal story of family reconciliation, but that's used to point a path forward for national reconciliation? And I, and I say this in my column um, that I've already put online and will be actually in print in next week's uh, Citizen. Reconciling in any context, I, I mean, fractured marriage, father, son, mother, daughter, indigenous, non-indigenous. Reconcil reconciling in any context, to me, really means seeing and hearing each other respectfully, acknowledging past wrongs, and then moving forward together using both the good from the past, but also those hard lessons to forge a new and better relationship. And like all relationships, we won't always agree and it won't be perfect, and that's okay. It will, of course, need constant work. But if the respect and trust are there, things can change and be better for everyone. And, and, and we have to have faith in that, or it's not going to get better. In the case of indig Indigenous reconciliation, non-Indigenous people need to educate themselves. Because it's really only been in recent years that in our schools that we bother to have First Nations history, never mind telling a fuller and truthful version of that history. So with education and teaching in mind, this is my segue, my first guest this morning is Joanne Hapke, the president of the Prince George Teachers District Teachers Association. Good morning. Good morning, Neil. Thank you for having me here. So much to talk about. As I said, I, good Lord, bargaining class sizes, teacher shortage, curriculum changes, crowded schools. But I do want to start with my introduction. As far as I can tell, our education system seems to be doing so much better a job than it did when I went to school uh, about telling First Nations history and explaining that culture and how it fits into the broader Canadian story. Uh, but what do you see as an educator from the inside? Oh, definitely. What is happening in our education system now, it is much different from even 10 years ago when I was in the classroom, 15 years ago when I was a grade four teacher and teaching about explorers. And that was where the Aboriginal education came in and how they supported explorers. But as you learn more about what has actually happened in our province, you're, you realize the full story was not being told to our students. And so we're grateful that we're being given an opportunity to actually explore the stories that are out there from all of the uh, the Indigenous groups that the uh, 
live in live on this land and hear their stories and allow the students in our classroom who are indigenous to be recognized and and have their history told and so our district and our uh, provincial government our education uh, the ministry is doing a great job of getting curriculum uh, on indigenous education out into our schools what does that mean in terms of of telling an, an honest version of our history? I, I, and I mean both good and bad. And I mean this has been something, and this is not a uniquely Canadian problem. Uh, we see it in our in our cousins to the south as well, where where the the, the story uh, our, our the story of sort of European settlement tends to be one of brave explorers and going mm-hmm. out into the You're wilderness right. and and all of that stuff and, and kind of <laughs> ignoring that there were people here before and that there were horrible things done to them as part of that European settlement. How honest is, I mean, from your perspective, how honest is our education and, and are we getting better with that? Uh, we certainly are. One of the main things I'm seeing is is that we are not telling their story. We're allowing uh, the, the people, the Indigenous people, to tell their story themselves, to give us that information instead of uh, taking information that we've heard and compiling it into a textbook and then presenting that. We're actually saying, no, this is your story. We need your information and we want you to do it. We want you to write these uh, the picture books that we could, the teachers can share within their classrooms. We want you to give the perspective of what is actually happening. And and through conversation, like just last week, I was in a, a district committee meeting and and uh, found out that the medicine wheel is not a part of this history, this culture in uh, the Clayley Tenay. And I'd never heard that before, but it's about having, giving people uh, access to our committees, access to our tables, so that they can be giving us the information and being receptive to hearing it and then sharing it. Uh, and and is, is this also then happening where... Um, at a district level and at a local school level that so within Prince George that we can tell the carrier story and the Clayley Tanay story where right schools in other parts of the province can tell can can I, I, I guess uh, uh, you know make it for their area uh, that, that is definitely the intent. And we have an Aboriginal education department uh, who have are staffed with Indigenous people, who are staffed with uh, people who are Aboriginal education workers, who are assigned to schools to go in and give teachers that information so that we are able to, to give uh, a more accurate account of, of what is happening now, what happened in the past, and where are we headed. So I, I think our district is doing a great job, and uh, I hope that all districts are, are doing what what our district has has put money and effort into it it really does seem long overdue i i like i i mean it, it's it, in hindsight now it just seems so obvious but i i mean I, I i grew up in a northern community where between a third and a half of the students in my elementary school classes were aboriginal and yet they were and i use this word very intentionally whitewashed from our history books, uh, right? I, I grew up in the Northwest Territories. All we heard about was Alexander Mackenzie. 
that, that, and that is true because it was the uh, the settlers who created that story. That's right, right. Yeah. It's a settler story, and so it's nice to hear that now, right now, our indigenous peoples get to tell their story in the classroom, and not just a history story, because then it makes it seem like it's dead or it's something that happened in the past. That's right. But that it's alive and well, and and indigenous culture is all around us. Oh, that, that's right. I mean, we have uh, an incredible staff, whether they are the support workers or uh, but people that, that come out of the Aboriginal department, education department, and they're they're doing things with students. Like one of my last schools, they, the students tanned a moose hide. Another school I know, they did a dugout uh, canoe. They, they created that. Like there are opportunities where all students, the Indigenous students get to learn pieces of their history, but the other students get to also experience uh, the of being part of that and having a greater appreciation for who who they are sharing their their space with, their environment with. And chatting with Jerry Chidiak, who writes for The Citizen yes. and teaches at Duchess, and right, I mean, he's teaching at the high school level. And of course, teenagers, right, I, I mean, just by their very nature, questioning the world, questioning authority, questioning what they've been told. And, and they are actually, I, I mean, Jerry is telling me this, and I have no reason to suspect he's wrong, that, 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 that teenagers are very open to, to hearing uh, the story about residential schools and, and the fact that, right, here's this group that, was, that, that are part of the Canadian history fabric and, and were really exploited, taken advantage of. Jerry teaches, uh, uh, um, you know, his course looks at genocide and certainly within the, the United Nations definition of cultural genocide, what happened in Canada certainly fits within that. And he told me, like, the students are very open to, to hearing that different narrative of Canadian history. At the at the high school level, uh, absolutely. Uh, the the more you learn about it, the more one can't help but be horrified by w what occurred. And the fact that you get to a certain age and you realize, how did I not know this? Why why was this not a story uh, forty years ago when I was in elementary school? And why why did that not occur back then? Because I too grew up uh, near a reserve in Nova Scotia. And never had that conversation, never had that awareness. And, and the nice thing to see about these teenagers, and I, I guess this is another path forward on, on reconciliation, is that many of these teenagers that Jerry and other teachers ha have told me is that these teenagers, it's like, well, no, this isn't about shame or, or, mm. or whatever. It's about, well, we have to be better than that. Yeah. And, and, and to me, that's the path forward, right, is that, you know, we can we can own what happened, but we can also say we can be better. We, sh we must be better going forward. That's right. We can focus on history all we want, but it is about the moving forward right. piece. That, that is where uh, uh, we, we hope that the students are hearing what we have to say in the classrooms so that when they get opportunities to have voice or make decisions, th they're making right. more educated decisions with all the facts. Making them aware that they're writing their own story, which will be history down the road. Exactly. Um, awkward segue, but... <laughs> We, we do have to talk about bargaining. Uh, we're at a sensitive time right now. Uh, teachers in this province have been working without a contract since the end of June of last year, correct? Well, we are still working under the terms and conditions of, of the previous uh, collective agreement. But, but and it did expire at the end of June. It did expire June 30th, 2019. We had been hopeful that July 1st, 2019, we would have had a new collective agreement to return to work under, but that was not the case. Right. 
Um, Teachers rejected uh, a three-year offer that the mediator had put on the table, uh, 2% wage increases every year. What happened? Uh, So the... not all teachers rejected that. The, that report was presented to a group of about 300 teachers at our representative assembly in November. And we rejected that report uh, for many reasons. But one of the main reasons was it was only November. Uh, we were in no rush. We were working under the previous terms of our collective agreement. Uh, we had non-enrolling ratios to support our classrooms. There was no reason to stop the bargaining process at that time. And so we are committed to getting a negotiated collective agreement either at the mediation table or back at the bargaining table. Right, right. Um, so then what are the what are the major issues? I mean, I, I, of course, wages are, are one of them. I, we hear that teachers in BC compared to uh, their colleagues uh, uh, in other provinces in Canada are significantly underpaid. Of course, we've heard that from UNBC, from our professors, of course. Um, right? Which makes it very difficult when there's a teacher shortage to attract teachers to BC. Uh, you know what? There, there are many, many layers here in uh, what, what we are looking for. But certainly, our recruitment and retention concern is uh, one one of the main issues for us. And we're seeing concerns in the classrooms every single day. We don't have enough TTOCs to cover teacher absences. We don't even have enough certified teachers. Teachers to on co- call. Uh, teachers on call, right? Substitute teachers. Um, we don't have enough teachers to fill the jobs that are out there right now. We have 13 unfilled jobs in our district from from McKenzie to Valemount right now that are not being filled by full-time teachers. They are, some of them are classrooms, some are non-enrolling, uh, some are looking for TTOCs, uh, but we don't have the staff right now to do even just the basic, let alone have our TTOCs for when someone is sick or needing to go away or or have a leave under the terms of our collective agreement. Is the challenge much like doctors and nurses and other uh, you know people specialized in their field uh, where there's a challenge getting to getting teachers, never mind to Prince George, but to a place like Mackenzie, McBride, Valmont? You know, our district has been incredibly successful with our sublocals of Mackenzie, McBride, Valemount and getting teachers to move out there because they they have a lifestyle that many people are looking for. Uh, So while there are a few jobs out there that are unfilled, the majority uh, of the needs in Mackenzie and McBride, Valemount have been filled outside of enough TTOCs. Um, But it's we have, our HR department is doing a great job of bringing people here, but it's the retention piece that we really need to get addressed. But it is not because of the work that the district is doing. It is on the provincial level. It is the salary that the teachers are making when they move out here, and then they realize they're living in a province that is unaffordable. And now Prince George, we actually, you can't afford to live here. But if you want to do more, if you want to travel, if you want to go someplace, yeah, that's going to take money. And so what teachers are finding when they move from out of province, uh, they have to get certified for, for British Columbia. And that process can take forever. Through the teacher qualification service, there are major delays 
to receiving certification. Uh, the website says it will take about two weeks to receive your certification once they have your last piece of information. I spoke to a teacher yesterday, five months. And during those five months, these teachers are being paid the lowest salary uh, that, that is out there. So step four, category four, step zero. And they're waiting to be paid at this salary that they should be paid at. And here they are living in an unaffordable province, making less money. So they took a wage decrease uh, to move here. And now they're making even less money than what they had anticipated. And so there, there are layers that are not just district, but provincial as well. Right. And then, of course, then there are other issues besides wages from class composition, class size, uh, right? These other outlying issues, which I do want to talk about, but I'd like to talk about right after this break. You're listening to After 9 on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS-FM. I've been chatting with Joanne Hapke from the Prince George District Teachers Association, and we were talking about wages and stuff, and of course, That's I'm right. not going to ask you to, to, to bargain on the radio with me, uh, but, but certainly uh, people and parents who have been following um, the education process and, and the challenges over the years between the provincial government and teachers is class sizes and class composition kind of keeps coming up as, as this big issue for teachers. Why is it so important? Oh, this is when we are talking about class size and class composition, uh, we are not just talking about the teacher's working condition, but we're also talking about the student's learning condition. And we our schools are different now from when we went through elementary school, when we went through high school. There are uh, a, a lot of different needs that are are in our classrooms now. And we have an inclusive education system and that that is great. And we have a lot of students of varying uh, needs within our classrooms. They need to be supported. So you can't have uh, a high number of students with a variety of concerns or learning uh, concerns. Needs, backgrounds. Everything. And not have supports, not have sufficient supports, and, and be one person trying to support all students, because that is our job. Every student is getting an individual education based on what their personal needs are, whether it's a, it's not an extreme need, it's it's it could be something quite minor, but every student is getting individual. And so we need it recognized that we, we cannot be doing this without a variety of supports, whether they are our education assistants, whether they're our learning assistance teachers, our resource teachers, we need help because that one person can't be doing it all. And the composition of the classroom makes a it, it does make or break a classroom. If, if, if you have too many needs there, the learning is going to be affected. The, the students get frustrated. Or scared. Uh, there, there, there are situations that our students are exposed to uh, on a daily basis that it, that is not good. Uh, but we we need extra within our classroom, so right. we can't just have anybody. Uh, once again, in the past, when we went to elementary school and there were twenty five kindergarten kids, we were all pretty homogenous. That is not happening. Right, right. In in these days. And so it is important because every parent is concerned about their child. Every teacher is concerned about every student in their classroom. And we need to be able to meet all those needs. 
the one question I will ask, and maybe you'll deflect or say I'll pass or whatever, but I, I'm going to ask it anyway. Sure. Um, this is the first time in 20 years that uh, that teachers are bargaining with an NDP government. Um, is at least the relationship a little bit more cordial and respectful than 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 past negotiating cycles? So while the NDP is the government in power, teachers are actually still bargaining with the employer's agent, BCPC. And uh, what has not changed there is the people that we are bargaining with. Those are the exact same people sitting across the table from us who were there with the previous government. Right. And so there is no change. The SCNDP is there, and the Premier has said that he uh, respects teachers, he supports teachers, but he, we are not bargaining with him. We are bargaining with his employer's agent. Right, and so that adds a level of complexity and and frustration. Right, right. Yeah, for sure. absolutely, frustration that uh, it, it is the exact same people who worked for years to uh, force us to strike, to reduce our collective agreement, to make the conditions worse for children. Right. We only have a few minutes left, okay. so I, I I want to circle back a little bit to to how we started our our conversation, just about curriculum changes, and of course. There's all sorts of curriculum changes, certainly not on the First Nations history front. All sorts of curriculum changes have really come down over the last five years or so and more on the way. Uh, can you walk us through some of those recent changes and also what you see on the horizon? Oh, the, the recent changes, yes, that there have been... There has been a lot, and, and it is focused on the whole curriculum. So instead of focusing on just individual ideas, we have big ideas. We want uh, students to understand a bigger concept and then be able to break it down into uh, more manageable s segments as, as we uh, teach. And it is giving flexibility to teachers to to follow some passion ideas that, that they have. You mentioned Jerry, like Jerry has an incredible course going on with his uh, genocide, but it it is that's not a provincial course. So we actually get to have more uh, locally based ideas happening. Uh, it, it is uh, it is a shift for many teachers who are who are comfortable with uh, the the curriculum being given to us. So this is what you must teach, and this is what it needs to look like. And now we're being allowed to be creative. And it's like, wow, okay, we, we love that idea. How, how do we get to that point? And uh, how do we do that without having the resources? Because not all, of, not all subject areas have all the resources. Not all schools have the resources that are necessary because they weren't created with this new curriculum. So it's, it's an interesting and exciting time to be in, but it's also a, a time where we go, okay, I want to do that, but how do I get there without having everything I need to, to do the work that needs to be done. And, and it must be frustrating for parents, and I'm a tiny bit speaking for myself, uh, frustrating for parents because the, cur the curriculum changes and it's and a parent goes, well, that's, that's not what I learned in school. Right. So when they have their kids saying, can you help me? And they look at the textbooks, they look at the homework and go, this is completely foreign to me. I can't help you. 
Yeah, I'm sure it, it, it would be frustrating. But I do know that when the curriculum was first changing, the district was offering uh, support sessions for parents, especially in the maths. Uh, the, uh, the concept and the idea of teaching math, uh, we've been exploring uh, a more creative, more more whole child-centered way of, of being able to deliver the concepts. And I know a couple of years ago, those sessions were being offered at night to parents. So whether they still are, I'm not sure. Yeah. Yeah, it. Uh, <laughs> I, I have kids in high school, and certainly, as you say, it's like I, I, I sat down. I, I stopped sitting down with them once they got past grade nine because I would work out the formula, and I said, "Okay, see how I did that." And they went, "Yeah, that's yeah. not what my teacher wants to see. My teacher wants to see a different process." Yes. And, yeah. and so, I mean, the one thing I have uh, like seeing is is the push definitely to keep. Uh, girls taking the math and the sciences to write to keep them engaged uh, rather than right we've you know historically there's been a huge drop off for girls in the math and and the sciences as they get into the senior high school so that's nice to see for sure oh definitely and we do have some incredible uh, women teachers at those levels so the girls are seeing themselves represented absolutely role models yeah Joanne thank you for coming in this morning and and uh, talking with with me and shedding some light on, on, on the education process, certainly from the teacher's perspective. Going to have Tim Bennett and Anita Richardson on the show next week. Uh, we had Tim on a little while ago. He's a school board chair and Anita is the new uh, superintendent. So we'll continue the education conversation next week. Thanks, Joanne. We'll be right back with Thank Robert Thank you, Neil. Kubel. I love surprises. And this is a surprise. I invited Robert Quibell, my friend and fellow Rotarian, to come on the show to talk about BC Hemp, and he brought Chris Hadfield with him. Not the astronaut, a different Chris Hadfield, who's also with BC Hemp, and so uh, th- this will be great because I'll be able to, because I think, Chris, your background is more of the actual production of hemp, and so I'll be, asked, be able to ask some maybe detailed questions about the actual production and growing process. So anyway, welcome. Yeah. Thank you. Um, what I don't know about hemp would fill a library. I'm sure of it. Um, if 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 I had to guess, I would say that, and, and that's after hearing Robert's presentation or Rotary yesterday. If I had to guess, hemp is like the stock and the fiber used to make stuff, and then cannabis is like the flower, and the that's where the THC and stuff comes from. I've got that completely wrong, Gavin. Both of you are, are grinning and kind of shaking your head at me. I got it all wrong. Straighten it out for me. Do you want me to go? Okay. Um, cannabis is is from the same cannabis sativa, which both plants come from, but one of them has a high amount of THC, and, and the other one, hemp, has a very low, or um, industrial hemp has a very low THC, or it has to be b- below point three percent and if it's any higher than that then the government makes us destroy it right um so they're very different and they're well they're they're the same plant but they're different they're grown for very different reasons both have flowers 
both have seeds. Right. Both have all the same things as, as the other plant. It's just they're they're grown for very different reasons. They're, they're different strains yes. than from from someone who knows plants and gardening. Yeah. yeah. Different strains. So if you if you're familiar with gardening, you think about uh, cannabis is like tomatoes. Well, there's there's thousands of varieties of tomatoes. This is the same sort of thing. And right. there's and there's varieties that are grown for a purpose with THC, and there's varieties that are grown for CBD, and there's varieties that are grown for grain, and there's varieties that are grown for fiber. It's all cannabis. And we talk about industrial health or generally talking about something out in a field that's grown for grain or for fiber. Right. Yeah. Um, so in terms of, of what could happen in Prince George, in terms of, of, of having uh, industrial scale hemp operations, are we talking fiber or more? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking all of it. Okay. Um, we're, um, there's different, there's, there's a, Different parts of the company. The part we're talking about is the hemp production side of the company. Um, it's It'll be the largest in the long term. Hemp will always be the largest. Um, everyone's looking at cannabis as being the big gold mine, and it is right now. Um, long term, the reason why hemp will start to take over is because everything that we see in this room could be made out of hemp, including the windows. Right. So now there'll be a plastic um, or some sort of composite, but they can make that as well. But the chairs, the table, the... Um, they're even looking at making batteries now with it, which are, are they're saying will be as good as lithium batteries because they're using some of the cellular structure that they pull out of the out of that um, out of the hemp. And then superconductors is another one that's become a massively big thing that's coming up. Um, there's hempcrete, which is like concrete, but it actually breathes and and it's it's um, it's insulating as well. So there's a ton of stuff, even uh, everything to pulp, to clothes, to all of that stuff will be, will, will be made. We're hoping in the north our, our eventual goal is because we'll have a, we, we are bringing a, a plant and we'll, there will be an announcement sometime next month about what's coming to Prince George. It's just really exciting. Everybody we tell just starts to smile and goes, wow. Um, so it's going to be really exciting. Before I want to, and, and, and the science stuff, right, the geek in me just like, tell me more. But I do want to get into the actual growing and production. So, uh, because in terms of, of like, like, what does that, this look like? Is that, am I driving, you know, south of, of, of town through, through uh, Pine View and Buckhorn and I'm looking out at fields and if I'm looking out at a hemp field, Chris, what am I looking at? It's not dramatically different than other fields that you would see. It's just way taller. That's going to be the biggest thing, right? It's it's um, fields of grain, fields of grass. You know, they're right. all fields of plants. This is a plant. It's just depending on the variety, it can be anywhere from three feet to 20 feet tall. So 20 feet tall. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if we'll get that here. You know, it, 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 the... The height of the plant is determined by the amount of daylight hours in a day. So actually farther north, it actually grows taller. Um, so there's there's areas where the same plant will grow five feet tall, and then you put it farther north, and it'll be 15 feet tall, uh, the same variety. So, you know, the, the variety the varieties we'll have here, it'll definitely be taller. So that from that perspective, driving by is going to look really different, um, but it still feels. So it... And, and I asked this at Rotary yesterday, and I, I guess I'll ask it more from a growing mm -hmm. perspective. I, I asked Robert more from an economic perspective, why Prince George? Is, is Prince George in that sweet zone where we've got the soil quality combined with those longer days in the spring and summer where 
where maybe further north it, it's it's a the, the spring's a little too late and the fall is a little too early and prince george's the porridge is just right i, I can talk for half an hour about why why <laughs> prince george is the right place but it's it's some of that it's none of that it's right. <laughs> there's a lot of pieces to it um, from what we can see is between all the different varieties we can grow hemp anywhere that that's not really the issue um there's better soil there's less you know that we, we have good soil we we don't use it very well but we have good mm. soil um there's areas that have better soil uh there, there's really logistically prince george is a really excellent place you know from a from a transport you know final product right. transport um there's lots of opportunity here air you know, rail there's, there's so much yep. roads, yeah, exactly right. yeah and and from a from a land perspective there's places that have better agriculture right there's places that are more uh, there's more fields there's more farmers there's more of that the going peace, on alberta yeah there's lots yeah. of that but here we actually have a lot of farmland and there's a lot of underutilized land. So that's one of the opportunities. There's, there's a lot of opportunity from a farmland perspective here. Um, like I said, we can go on for a long time. <laughs> the, economic, the economics of tri- making it work here as well, because we've got four corners we can reach mm-hmm. out to. It's not a, a one highway coming in, one highway going out. It's, it's, we've got four directions that we can pull um, product from and also the all that work that the city um, and the communities put together over the last 20 years to build up the infrastructure within it all makes sense as long as we can tie it. There's some pieces we have to work on. There's some issues with the airport and stuff like that because we actually want to fly directly to Frankfurt and into China. So we're, well, hopefully after the virus goes away, but um, uh, we're, 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 working, right. we're looking at that as well. So this is there's lots of reasons why Prince George so many questions about why Prince George, and I will ask them right after this short break. It's after nine on Prince George's Community Station, 93.1 CFIS FM. I'm talking with Robert Covell and Chris Hadfield from BC Hemp about commercial hemp and, and, and having a, a hemp industry uh, in the pin- Prince George area and what we're talking about we're not talking about an isolated field here and there and maybe a small production facility we're talking about right on an industrial scale Uh, when I was mentioning this to to my wife at home last night she she mentioned greenhouses and I said no I think we're talking about like fields uh, of this because that's that's the economy of scale here to make this work yeah we're talking eventually hundreds of thousands of acres Right. Wow. That's that really is amazing. Um, and you guys, uh, Robert, you mentioned about the kinds of products that that hemp can make that using the fiber and and the, the whole part. And it really is, I guess, a holistic plant in that you can use the whole plant to make an amazing array of products. When our when our chairman of the board first introduced me, me to the whole idea of hemp, because um, I was probably the most resistant of anybody you probably talked to. Um, but if you can convince me this is a good idea, I went, oh, my goodness, um, you can convince anybody. Um, but as far as what hemp can do, it's nuts. Because one day Remy comes in and he says, oh, Robert, you know that hemp can pull radiation out of the ground? And I'm just sitting there going like, Really? So then that night I go home and I'm like a real researcher and I get online and I start looking at it and I go, 
oh my god it's used all over the world to pull radiation out of the ground it's pulled all over the world to pull mercury, mercury out of the ground lead, all Every, sorts yeah of things, it's right? crazy so then i'm like a holy cow so then we talked to a group up north who's saying that they have some mercury issues so we're looking that's one of the projects we're looking at doing in the future is, is actually using the hemp to draw it out and then create products that we can use that it's safe within it so that we can we don't have to burn it because we don't want to burn the hemp because as soon as we burn the hemp we 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 reduce the value of the co2 we can pull out of the air so that's another reason why we're pretty keen about this because we know that the amount of capture of co2 that we can do is amazing but developing this industry here what 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 you fellows are talking about is more developing the raw product mm-hmm. and then someone else buys the raw product the the pulp if you will to make products with what's the market we want it here we actually have a lot of it already sold um but we want it here as well we want prince george to be a, a, a hemp hub a um, place where you think Say about that five you, times fast. well is, is that <laughs> that, that term actually comes from remy but um uh yeah hemp hub because um, everybody's always talked about prince george this great big hub in the north and all that stuff so now we're, we want to really make it one we want to make it to the place where when someone in the world thinks about hemp they think about prince george um, and we, 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 our plan is to be here, stay here. We want to help other businesses get started who use hemp to build their products because we know there's over 55,000 of them that they can make. So we want to really make it strong here. Boy, is your timing good. Well, we know that. <laughs> Absolutely. Long-term downturn in yes. the forest sector. And you guys are talking about something that at least from just a casual conversation sounds like something that could employ thousands of people contribute tens or hundreds of millions of dollars to the regional economy in the long term and make living and working in this area completely sustainable we've been struggling with the announcement because we've been working on this for two years um so we've been struggling struggling with when to announce the when we're going to do this and a a lot of it comes from the both remy and um remy who is our, our chairman of the board, and Michael, who is our CEO. Um, and they wanted people to know that it's not going to be as bad as what, what they're seeing because this was coming. So we've been struggling, especially over the last three months, as to when to announce this. So finally, we've decided, well, we, we need to say something. So we're actually probably pushing our announcement a little bit sooner than what we would have liked to have, but we want people to know we're here. From the business angle, and I know, Robert, you're the guy to ask this, what's the view from the investment community? Um. We, we're not having any problem with, with as far as getting investment, um, mostly because we have a we have a really strong model. And, and it's been what's been really interesting about um, doing this business is both before the legalization and after the legalization, the change in the sort of way people talk about it. And also we've been able to find some really amazing people all locally that are part of our our, our senior executive and people who know a lot about hemp that are in the in the north right uh, and and um, one of the things i think one of you two mentioned yesterday at at rotary that i found interesting was there is even i guess because there's a fiber component to it that there is even that some of this material could even be used by the pulp mills yeah, we want, we're, we're looking at that. It's definitely something that we're doing research on. We found that there's there's the capability of doing now, so we have to start figuring out who's willing to look at it with us, especially as we start creating the bigger amounts once we start getting into the bigger productions, which will be in the next couple of years. And, and hemp used, paper used to be made out of hemp. 
this isn't a new thing. You right. know, they talk about in the States, you hear all sorts of stuff. Well, the Declaration of Independence was printed on hemp paper, right? Like that was it. That was the thing in the past, right? It was, uh, so this isn't new. Um, it's figuring out. One of the things that I think is interesting to note is that because of the legalization, um, there's research happening now that was just about impossible to do in the past. So we talk about 55,000 products right now, and that's number small compared to what's going to come because people haven't been able to do, you know, very, you know, formal research easily in the past. So this, right. that number is going to jump. Right, for sure. And, and, I, and I guess the one thing that, that uh, looking at hemp from, from a, a, a commercial standpoint is that, is that if there is a facility here for those entrepreneurial minds who mm-hmm. want to get into the manufacturing of whatever kind of product, suddenly they have potentially a resource right in their own backyard. Yeah. We want that. We want the economic. We want the economic development to come here. It's crucial to our business model, but it, it's also a, it's a decision we made in the early stage. We said, who do we want to be? Um, and we said we want to be we want to be here. We want to we want people here to to get our product. We'll we'll make arrangements so they can get it at a very fair price, right. um, because we want it to be here. Because it, it's just where we live. We want to be here. Right. The, the right. South gets all this interesting stuff, but now we have something where we can do it here, and so we want to keep it here. And, and what's really interesting about that as well is that our team, every one of us, was thinking that before we got involved. Right. right. Every one of us has that focus of let's make Prince George better. Let's have this stuff happen here and not send it all someplace else. Right. From from a growing standpoint, Chris, and, and are there examples in other jurisdictions, whether in Canada or other parts of the world, where where we've been able to see what growing hemp on an industrial scale, the hundreds of mm-hmm. thousands of acres that Robert is talking about, where where we can see, you know, how does that affect the soils? Uh, do you have to use, uh, you know, fertilizers, pesticides? Uh, where does that all fit in? I'm hoping to do something a little bit different than what we're generally seeing out there. Having said that, I mean, we've been growing hemp in Canada now for just about 20 years on a fairly big scale. You know, two years ago, there was 150,000 acres growing across Canada. So this isn't something where, you know, it's just barely starting and there's only hundreds of acres out there. So, it, you know, you can look across the prairies and see what what's going on. Um, in rotation, they're having good success with it. Where, you know, if you go into the grocery stores and you actually look, you'll see hemp hearts and it's all Manitoba, Manitoba harvest hemp hearts, right? And they're all over the place. And this has been going on for a while. Right, yeah. right. We'll take one more short break before the end of the show. We'll be right back. Seventh in Prince George. Featuring the people who make things happen in Prince George. You're listening to After 9 on 93.1 CFIS-FM. With just a few minutes left with my guests, Robert Quabell and Chris Hadfield from BC Hemp, I, 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 I just, I, I guess I want to manage the expectations here a little bit. Uh, lots of challenges, lots of logistics, lots of hurdles to get through. Uh, what, what do you have to get through before we get to this promised land of, like I said, those thousands of jobs and, and you know, all this economic activity going on? And, and, and can you cover it all in a couple of minutes? No, <laughs> no. <laughs> No, there's a lot. So what's immediately, what's keeping you up at night then, I guess, with it? Uh, which strains, uh, what the production rates will be like, um, the processing plant. The Surprisingly, well, not surprising, the regional districts has been absolutely amazing. Um, we met with them yesterday for some preliminary talks. Um, they've been great. Um, city's been good. Um, they're, it's... 
What, our biggest thing is strains, trying to figure out which ones work best for here. And then also we have some options that we want to bring in, um, but we have to get those, those all have to go through the regulatory process. So that we've got to go through that. Then we got to figure out the, um, we, we learned a lot about planting last year. I mean, we had a lot of debates. Chris won. Um, he's always wins. With the, with the, from, the guy with the farming background should probably <laughs> win that argument. With the, from a farming perspective, it's an interesting thing because the plant is old and there's lots of knowledge out there about it, but it's all 100 years old. So, you know, the, the entire world, is maybe except for China, is trying to figure out how to do this with current technology, with current equipment. So, we're, you know, we're going out there and trying to learn from other people's mistakes and figure out what equipment is going to do well with this like what machine is going to work best and that and and then going through all that and then recognizing that you know five years from now it's going to be a totally different world because it's legalized all these suppliers are going to be making equipment especially especially for it so it, it's really a unique challenge as far as the the farming side goes right yeah. um and and of course probably there's all sorts of research uh has there been any chat with uh, UNBC at this point about uh, them doing more research that could kind of help you guys along a little totally bit. Totally both. We when we when we when we there's so many things we, we when we when we started our initial planning. One is we definitely want to have the university majorly involved. We want to have the college majorly involved. We've talked with. Um, I think they signed an MO yes, yesterday with UNBC, and I know that we're going to be talking to the college soon um, because we really want to make. We want to make it so people come to Prince George to learn about hemp. And they go look at it as, this is where I go to learn about it. And we're hoping that if we can fulfill that, we get the university majorly involved, we get the college majorly involved. And when you think about hemp and you want to learn somewhere, the best place in the world, you come to Prince George. Right. And that's hemp a major hub. part hemp of our hub. goal. Yep. Hemp hub. Hemp yeah. hub. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but that's fantastic. But that, that is, I mean, I mean both from the, from the university standpoint, where you have that research into whether it's, whether it's uses from manufacturing mm. Point or, or even growing, developing new strains. And then, of course, the college, that's where you can come in from the trades aspect, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly. Um, that, that's really exciting. Yeah, we want it to be a full... I mean, sometimes the challenge is just keeping our scale down and making sure that we don't have too many meetings in between doing some of the work that we have to do in between. It's been, especially for me, because I seem to go to most of them. But it's good. Right. The response has been phenomenal. The university has been great. The college has been great. I, I, when I asked you about the challenges, though, and, and this must be gratifying to you, you didn't talk about investors. You didn't talk about markets or buyers of meaning that's taken care of. Pretty much, really, yeah, really pretty what much, you're yeah. talking a, about is yeah. kind of a little bit more on the kind of the regulatory and the actual development and which strains you're going to grow. Like some of some of it is so. I mean, and we're we're lobbying towards this. It's very difficult to work with the banks as far as banking accounts and stuff like that. So that is a challenge, definitely a challenge for us. We're going through it. Everybody who's in this industry goes through it. It's across the board. Um, we want to see some major changes there because this is, it's like. We get researched all the time to make sure that we're, you know, nice human beings, and we are. <laughs> right. I, I, and, of course, I, I, I'm sure the regulations will loosen significantly once the industry develops. And, of course, banks are, well, they're money people. And I think when they see the return on investment, I mean, they will be lining up to give companies like BC Hemp opportunities to, to grow yeah. and succeed. Yeah, in the future, there's no question. Yeah, it's yeah. getting to that future. Is, it's you know, is it's, the, it's the getting to that future. Um, it's I, I guess the other. So what's next? I, I mean, what's 
you know, you have an announcement, hof- uh, you know, hopefully next month. No, no, it will be next month. Okay. We're just trying we'll to sort the day out. We want certain people to be there. So we found out the first day that we had said we couldn't get them and, there. So and you now have a location? Yeah, we're, we're at the old uh, Ritchie Brothers uh, location, which is soon going to be called uh, BC Hemp location. Um, right. uh, and that's 1434 Old Caribou Road. Right, so Old Caribou Highway yeah, and, old Caribou and Highway, highway yep. 16, yep. right? So yep. very central, very smart mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. the transportation, close to the airport, yep. uh, rail, highways, all of that. Wow, that, that that's really smart. That's um, that's just for a head office. Our, right. our actual site is going to be closer to the airport. Right. Um, so so what what will you two be working on, sort of for the rest of 2020 and going into 2021? Chris will be working on getting the stuff in the ground and getting the test stuff. My my job will be reaching out to First Nations. Um, to the local communities to let us them know that we're here to teach people about hemp because there's a lot of misconception as you probably found out yesterday. Um, no, you found out at the start of this interview. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, I mean, you, Neil. Um, yeah, no, we'll be doing lots of those. Uh, we're planning a um, a. Um, a seminar for September, which we're hoping lots of people in the north will come to, especially if they're interested in uh, this area, because it's, it's going to be very informative and it looks like we'll get some really interesting people for that. Right. So I'll be working on that um, and also traveling, yeah. talking to lots of people about what this stuff can do. Last question, Chris. Uh, uh, just talking with local farmers, local ranchers, uh, are, are, are they excited? When you talk to them about the this? The few I've talked to, I expect that that's going to continue to be the case. But we've, we've really been leading up to the point where we're going to get out there and do that in a big way. Right. So this is this announcement with our with our you know first or second week of March now, and and uh, that's going to kick off a lot of those conversations. Right, so, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Interesting times ahead. Very. This, this is very much so. Th- this is going to be fun to watch, and uh, so so definitely good luck. Uh, uh, I, I can't wait to see to see where this ends up. Um, thank you to my guests today, Robert Cobell, Chris Hadfield from BC Hemp, and also Joanne Hapke from the Prince George District Teachers Association, talking about education. As I mentioned earlier, uh, my guests next week, Tim Bennett, uh, the school board chair, and Anita Richardson, the brand new uh, superintendent with School District 57, will talk in seven days.